Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. Uh, Last week, we closed up this message series through Matthew's gospel. Seventy weeks for this weekend that we've been walking through the story of Jesus as seen and written down in one of his disciples' own words, Matthew. And uh, it's been a great time. It's been a lot of fun. It's been the longest series I've ever done. And, uh, you know, when I was presenting it to one of my friends, he said, good luck. I could never do that. I said, I don't know. I could never do it either. We did it. We made it all the way through. And next week we start the book of Psalms. We're going to start in Psalm 1. You can open that up and start reading it. It's just a few verses. We're going to journey through that for the spring and the summer. And yet I didn't want to leave Matthew without a reminder Uh, I kind of have a teacher's heart and I want to tell you what we're going to tell you and then tell you and then at the end tell you what we told you kind of thing. Because Matthew is so powerful. And so today is a recap. And I find no greater way to do this than through a video that's put together by the Bible Project. Bible Project is a nonprofit down in Portland. And they uh, work with the scriptures and they help explain the scriptures, the themes, the purposes. They make videos, animated videos. They've been doing it for a couple years now. In fact, two years ago, in preparation for Matthew, not only was I reading Matthew all the time, digesting through it, I watched this video a number of times and I thought, this would be great to show you. So for the next 13 and a half minutes, we're going to watch the Matthew video from the Bible Project. And they have videos of each of the books of the Bible, but you're going to see the overview of Matthew. And you're going to ask yourself this question. So James, if they can do it in 13 minutes, why did you take 70 weeks? (laughs) That's for another day to explain. Let's watch this together. The Gospel according to Matthew. It's one of the earliest official accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The book itself is anonymous, but the earliest reliable tradition links it to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the twelve apostles that Jesus appointed, and he actually appears within the book itself. For about 30 to 40 years, the apostles orally taught and passed on their eyewitness accounts about Jesus, along with his teachings that they had all memorized. And Matthew has then collected and arranged all these into this amazing tapestry and designed the book to highlight certain themes about Jesus. Specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel, that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and not only that, Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel. 
And Matthew's designed this book with an introduction and then a conclusion, and these act like a frame around five clear sections right here in the center, each of which concludes with a long block of Jesus' teaching. Now, this design is very intentional, and it's amazing. Just watch how this works. Chapters 1 through 3, they set the stage by attaching Jesus' story right onto the storyline of the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew opens with a genealogy about Jesus that highlights how he is from the messianic line of the son of David, and he's a son of Abraham. That means he's going to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. After that, we get the famous story about Jesus' birth and how all of the events fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic promises that the nations would come and honor the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But even more than that, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, his name Emmanuel, all these work together to show that Jesus is no mere human. He is God with us. God become human. So you can see two of Matthew's key themes right here in the introduction. He's from the line of David. He's Emmanuel. But Matthew also wants to show how Jesus is a new Moses. So like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt. He passed through the waters of baptism and he entered into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain to deliver his new teaching. So through all of this, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised greater than Moses figure who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to give them new divine teaching. He's going to save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. This Moses and Jesus parallel also explains why Matthew has structured the center of the book the way that he did. These five main parts highlight Jesus as a teacher, and he's created a parallel. Jesus as a teacher parallels the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new authoritative covenant teacher who's going to fulfill the storyline of the Torah. Now, in the first section, chapters 4 to 7, Jesus steps onto the scene announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And this is really key. The kingdom is, in essence, about God's rescue operation for his whole world. And it's taking place through King Jesus. Jesus has come to confront evil, especially spiritual evil, and its whole legacy of demon oppression and disease and death. Jesus has come to restore God's rule and reign over the whole world by creating a new family of people who will follow him, obey his teachings, and live under his rule. So, after Jesus begins healing people and forming a movement, a community, he takes his followers out to a mountain or a hillside, and he delivers his first big block of teaching, traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus explores what it looks like to follow him and live in God's kingdom. And it's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. So the poor, the nobodies, the wealthy, the religious, everybody is invited and is called to turn, to repent, and to follow follow Jesus and join his family. Jesus says that he's not here to set aside the commands of the Torah or the Old Testament. Rather, he's here to fulfill all of that through his life, through his teachings. He's here to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly love God and love their neighbor, including their enemy.
After concluding his great teaching on the kingdom, the next section shows Jesus bringing the kingdom into reality in the day-to-day lives of people. So Matthew's arranged here nine stories about Jesus bringing the power of God's kingdom into the lives of hurting, broken people. There are three groups of three stories, and they're all about people who are sick or have broken bodies or they're in danger, and Jesus heals or saves them by these acts of grace and power. And then right in between these triads, we find two parallel stories about Jesus's call that people should follow him. Matthew's making a point here. One can only experience the power of Jesus's grace by following him and becoming his disciple. Now, after Matthew has shown the power of the kingdom through Jesus, Jesus then extends his reach by sending out the 12 disciples who are going to go do what he's been doing. And this leads to the second large block of teaching, chapter 10. And here, Jesus teaches his disciples how to announce the kingdom and what to expect once they do. Many among Israel are accepting Jesus and his offer of the kingdom, but Israel's leaders, they aren't. They stand to lose a lot if they repent and become disciples of Jesus. And so Jesus knows they're going to reject him and persecute his followers which is exactly what happens. In the next section, chapters 11 through 13, Matthew has collected a group of stories about how people are responding to Jesus and his message, and it's a mixed bag. So some stories are positive. People love Jesus, and they think he's the Messiah. Others are more neutral, like John the Baptist, or even the members of Jesus' own family. And they make it clear that Jesus is not what they expected. And then you have Israel's leaders. They're entirely negative. You have the Pharisees and the Bible scholars. They all reject Jesus together. They think he's a false teacher. He's leading the people astray. They think he's blasphemous in these exalted claims he's making about himself. But Jesus isn't surprised or thrown by all these diverse responses. In fact, he focuses on it in the third block of teaching, chapter 13. Here, Matthew's collected together a bunch of Jesus' parables about the kingdom, like about a farmer throwing seed on four types of soil, or about a mustard seed, or a pearl, or buried treasure. These parables are like a commentary on the stories that you've just read in chapters 11 and 12. Some people are accepting Jesus with enthusiasm. Others are rejecting him. But God's kingdom is of ultimate value, and it will not stop spreading despite all of these obstacles. So, that's the first half of the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, here's a few more things to look for as you read through these chapters. Matthew's presenting Jesus, remember, as the continuation and fulfillment of the Old Testament storyline. So, look for how he weaves in quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. And what you'll find is that they're placed at strategic points in the story, explaining more about Jesus and his identity. So, stop. Take time to go look up these references and read them in their Old Testament context. And most often, you'll discover really cool, interesting connections. Lastly, pay attention to the types of people who accept Jesus and follow him. And you'll see that it's most often people who are unimportant, they're nobodies, or they're irreligious. And these are the people who are transformed by their trust or faith in Jesus and follow him. And it's the religious and the prideful who are offended by him.
So how is this tension between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? The next large section, chapters 14 through 20, explore all the different expectations people have about the Messiah. So Jesus keeps healing sick people, and twice he even miraculously provides food for these huge crowds in the desert. One is made up of Jewish people, and the other is a non-Jewish crowd. And this sign, it's very similar to what Moses did for Israel in the wilderness. And so all these people are excited about Jesus. They think he's the great prophet and the Messiah, but not the religious leaders. Their view of the Messiah is built on passages like Psalm 2 or Daniel chapter 2 about a victorious Messiah who's going to deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. And from their point of view, Jesus, he's a false teacher. He's making blasphemous claims about himself. And so there are stories here about them increasing their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus, he withdraws and he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah, because it is not what anybody expects. So Jesus asks his disciples, chapter 16, he says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer, it seems. He says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. But then it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military power. And Jesus challenges Peter, saying that, yes, I am going to become king, but through a different way. And so Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the messianic king would suffer and die for the sins of his own people. And so Jesus, he was positioning himself as a messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant and who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. Well, Peter and the disciples, they mostly just don't get it. And so Jesus enters into the fourth block of teaching, followed by a series of teachings after that. And these are all about the upside down nature of Jesus's messianic kingdom, which turns upside down all of our value systems. So in the community of the servant king, you gain honor by serving others. And instead of getting revenge, you forgive and do good to your enemies. And in Jesus's kingdom, you gain true wealth by giving your wealth away to the poor. To follow the servant Messiah, you must become a servant yourself. In the next section, we watch the two kingdoms clash, Jesus' kingdom and that of Israel's leader. Jesus comes to Jerusalem for Passover, riding in on a donkey, and the crowds are hailing him as the Messiah. And Jesus immediately marches into the courtyard of the temple, and he creates this huge disruption that brings the daily sacrifices to a halt. His actions speak louder than words here. As Israel's king, Jesus was asserting his royal authority over the temple, the place where God and Israel met together. And in Jesus' view, the temple was compromised by the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders. And so here he's challenging their authority, and naturally, they're deeply offended. And so they try to trap Jesus and shame him in public debate, and they fail. So they end up just determining to have him killed. In response, Jesus delivers his final block of teaching. He first offers this passionate critique of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And then he weeps over Jerusalem and its rejection of God and his kingdom. Then Jesus withdraws with the disciples and he starts telling them what's going to happen. He's going to be executed by these leaders. But in doing so, they're going to create their own demise. Because instead of accepting Jesus' way of the peaceful kingdom, they're going to take the road of revolt against Rome. And so Jerusalem and its temple are going to be destroyed. 
But, Jesus says, that is not the end of the story. He's going to be vindicated after his death by his resurrection. And one day, he'll return and set up his kingdom over all nations. And so in the meanwhile, the disciples need to stay alert and stay committed to just announcing Jesus and his kingdom and spreading the good news. And so with all of that ringing in the disciples' ears, the story comes to its climax. That night, Jesus takes the disciples aside and he celebrates a Passover meal with them. The Passover retells the story of Israel's rescue from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And then Jesus takes the bread and the wine from this meal as new symbols, showing that his coming death would be a sacrifice that would redeem his people from slavery to sin and evil. After the meal, Jesus is arrested. He's put on trial before the Sanhedrin, a council of Jewish leaders, and they reject his claim to be the Messiah. They charge him with blasphemy against God. Then Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, and he thinks Jesus is innocent, but he gives in to the pressure from the Jewish leaders and he sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. So Jesus is led away by Roman soldiers and crucified. Now, you'll notice right here in this section that just like Matthew did in the opening chapters, he increases the number of references to the Old Testament. He's trying to show that Jesus' death was not a tragedy or a failure. Rather, it was the surprising fulfillment of all of the old prophetic promises. Jesus came as the servant Messiah, spoken of by Isaiah. He was rejected by his own people, but instead of judging them, he is judged on their behalf bearing the consequences of their sin. So the crucifixion scene, it comes to a close, and Jesus' body is placed in a tomb. But the book ends with a surprising twist, the last chapter. The disciples, they discover on Sunday morning that Jesus' tomb is empty. And then, all of a sudden, people start seeing Jesus alive from the dead. And the book concludes with the risen Jesus giving a final teaching called the Great Commission. Jesus says that he is now the true king of the world. And so he sends his disciples out to all nations with the good news that Jesus is Lord and that anyone can join his kingdom by being baptized and by following his teachings. And echoing all the way back to his name, Emmanuel, God with us from chapter one, Jesus's last words in the book to his disciples are, I will be with you. It's a promise of Jesus's presence until the day he finally returns. And that's the gospel according to Matthew. Not bad, huh? That's good. I am obviously not that smart, so it took me a lot longer. Um, You know, the Bible Project is a great organization just right down Portland here. And um, I always want to promote what they do. They're great believers. They have a mission, and that is to train to educate people uh, on the scriptures, which can be daunting for a lot of people to open up a big book like that. So watch this video for two minutes about them, and uh, we'll go on with our message. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Project. We make videos and resources that help people see how the Bible one unified story that leads to Jesus. We believe the Bible is literary genius and has divine wisdom for our modern world. The Bible Project is a nonprofit, crowdfunded creative studio located here in Portland, Oregon. Everything we make, we give away for free, and that's because of your support. If you're new here, here's a quick tour. So first we have the Read Scripture video series. We have a video about every single book of the Bible, exploring its literary design, its main ideas, all to set you up to read these books for yourself. We also do animated short films in every section of the Bible. So we've done the Torah series, 
we did the wisdom series and we'll do a lot more series like those as well. We also make theme videos. This is where we take one idea that's core to the Bible and we show how it is introduced and then develops and leads to Jesus. These are videos like holiness or the image of God. We're going to do more this year. We got a series coming out on how to read the Bible. We'll do a whole series on biblical word studies. Mm-hmm. And more. We have more. We have a podcast uh, that comes out regularly. We're starting to make books and print resources. Uh, we also have a team that's starting to get these videos translated into languages all around the world. And we hope these videos are helpful to you. You can actually join the Bible Project. You can go to our website, thebibleproject.com. You can see the project we're working on right now, and you can help us make it by giving a one-time gift or becoming a monthly supporter of the whole thing. Thanks so much for being a part of this. Yeah, thank you guys. All right, BibleProject.com, you can check it out. Uh, They have a lot of resources available. Again, every book of the Bible is in story format, in graphic format. You can watch that and understand in a greater way. They have reading programs. My wife, Mary Beth, is going through that this year. Read through the Bible and using their graphics and videos and such to walk through. That's pretty outstanding. And it's applicable to all ages. So I'd encourage you to check it out. And I would encourage you to support them because they're doing a great work. Well, we are finished with Matthew. As I was thinking about it, uh, last couple weeks, I thought, I don't really want to jump right into Psalms. We'll do that next week with Psalm 1. But I wanted to recap. I really did want to spend just a few moments reminding ourselves of what we've seen. Because I know that some of us have come in in the middle of the series. Some of us have just come in this week or last week since Easter and the the credits of the movie are going by and you have no idea what's going on. Uh, But I'd like to recap and I'd like to share for me a few thoughts. Now you probably have some thoughts. You probably have some things that you learned. But you know, there's a, a misbelief, a misunderstanding that, you know, like a guy like me, I go to Bible college and I go to seminary, get a master's degree, get a doctorate, things like that. I know it all, that I've gone through classes and I have this all figured out. I know nothing. Um, in fact, that's like the honest truth. I, I know this much more than you. I just can barely keep up. So I will study a passage. If I prepare for a book, I'll read that probably 30 times once a day to get ready for it, to get the themes and ideas. But then when it comes time to actually laying this out, I'm only a couple weeks ahead of myself as I preach and the other communicators that I deliver the message. I mean, I do remember, you know, close to two years ago, sitting in a hotel, mapping out all of the whole book of Matthew, thinking, how are we going to do this, you know? But it works. But I only learn it just before you learn it. And so all the things that we've discovered in the last 70 weeks, these are things that are fresh for me. I've preached through the Sermon on the Mount. I've preached through the Great Commission. I've seen some of the Matthew 13 parables, but I've never personally studied through it like this. And it's exciting to do so. And so I had some aha moments in my head that I learned and I'm still learning on this. And so I want to share a couple. I want to share six with you. And I've got them on the screen. And the first one is simply this. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Now, let's understand Again, Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. And so what's paramount to him is to explain how Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, again, that's not a word we use. We don't really think about the word Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. But the word Messiah 
and the word Christ are the same. They just come through different languages. Messiah comes from Hebrew. Christ comes from Greek. But they mean the anointed one. And the anointed one simply meant this. The person that God had chosen for a specific purpose. So back in the Old Testament, a prophet, a priest, a king would be anointed with oil. Literally would have oil, olive oil poured all over their head. Would run down their beard, down their clothes, down to their feet, onto the ground. That symbolized God's presence and power coming upon them. And a classic picture of that is David. David's a teenager. Doubt he had a big flowing beard, but you know, he was a cool kid. And the prophet Samuel comes up and pours oil on his head. David is anointed as the king. In the Old Testament, all the way literally back to Genesis chapter 3, unbelievable, the story of the unfolding of the Messiah begins. As it begins to be walked through and worked its way through, we see more and more of an anointed one coming. There are many anointed ones in the Old Testament, but there's this prefiguring of a great anointed one, a Messiah, a king, a Christ is going to come and he's going to set everything back the way God wanted it. And so all through the Old Testament, up to the time of Jesus, messianic fever was at an incredible pitch because people wanted the Messiah to come. Now, Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah. I happen to be a Gentile. I don't have Jewish roots. I didn't grow up going to synagogue. I'm not reading Hebrew on a daily basis. I don't understand it. I don't get the nuances. So we have to go in and study some language and culture and geography and certain things. And all of a sudden, these nuances that a God-fearing Jewish person would naturally get pop out to us. You know, Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah. If you go on, you look at Mark, Mark does not present Jesus that way. He presents Jesus as a servant who comes and Mark presents Jesus. It's very quick. It's fast. It goes through everything is the next thing and immediately and immediately, immediately. If you read a couple chapters of Mark, you need to take a nap because you're already exhausted. Okay. That's how Mark presents to his audience, his Roman audience. I want you to see the Jesus I followed, but I'm going to focus in on him as a servant. And then Luke comes in and focuses on Jesus as a man. I want to show the human side of Jesus. I want to show the the weaker side. Uh, Obviously, he was God. He was the Messiah. He was a servant. But I want to emphasize his humanity. And then John comes in and says, I want to emphasize his deity. He was God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present Jesus from the earth up, meaning you discover Jesus and who he is as you go through the story. But not John. John starts from the very beginning and says, hey, this is God of all gods. He was with him in the beginning. And he just has argument after argument, point after point about Jesus being God and the son of God. Well, as we've journeyed through Matthew, then the question relates you know, to us is what is a Messiah? Why would we need a Messiah? We're not Jewish people. This was 2000 years ago. How does this relate to us? But I still think everything Matthew presented relates to you and to me today because we are all longing for something. We are all looking for something. We are all desiring a wholeness and a restoration. We all know the world's broken. We all know we're broken. And if we don't, we need to go to AA and discover that, right? We need to look in the mirror and go to recovery groups on Thursday night here. There's a problem in this world and sin has destroyed at a very, very fundamental level what God had imagined. But it's not over and it's not hopeless because God is going to rebuild it. And so Jesus comes as Messiah, as Christ, as the anointed one. And when he comes, he announces 
the kingdom of God on the earth. In fact, that's the next thing that was, you know, huge for me. Uh, I, I didn't know much about the gospel of the kingdom as I studied through it in the last couple of years. You know, it dawned on me. Again, I, I, you know, I'm learning this too. That when Jesus came on the scene, he was mirroring the words of John, John the Baptist, who came and said, repent of your sins and turn to God, enter the kingdom of heaven. That we would repent of our sins. Repentance is both an internal thought beginning that leads itself to external fruit of repentance to our lives change. We go the other way. And so repent of your sins and turn to God and enter into the kingdom of heaven. What Matthew is clearly communicating, even to people that are non-Jews like you and me, is that God has a desire to restore order, godness on the earth. He still wants to build a kingdom. Yeah, there is a future eternal kingdom. There is the reality of that. But if our gospel is only the gospel of the transaction, which is we come to Christ because he came to the cross, died for us, went to, you know, into the grave, rose again, and we now receive that and our sins wiped away. That's true. That's not what Jesus communicated because that hadn't happened yet. It's the same overall message, but it's the reality that even today, you and I can announce the kingdom of God. You and I can stand there in our workplaces and our schools and our gyms and our dog parks or out on the walkway today or wherever we are. That there is a God and he loves us. And yes, the world is broken and it's, it's just messed up. But God is in the process of restoring it. Now, ultimately, that will be when the new heavens and the new earth come. But even today, we can live in the kingdom of God. That right now, we either live in the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God. We can live in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of Jesus. And it's one or the other. And I myself, as a natural person being born, I was born into this system, born with sin. I was in this other kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And when I was 15 years old, I prayed to receive Christ and I moved into the kingdom of light. But it still took me years to discover that it wasn't just about me praying a prayer and going on. It was about me following Jesus, being a disciple and announcing the kingdom and seeing the kingdom of God come on the earth in practical ways, in people's lives, in real tangible experiences. And God wants to do that today. He really does. It's going to be a while. We're still waiting for him to fix everything ultimately. But even today, he can use you and me to change the world around us. As we see Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he invites people into this gospel and he invites them to enter the kingdom of God. And I know this, and I don't know if you've been with this this whole time, but the invitation that Jesus offered still applies today. Jesus came alongside these uh, fishermen, these early followers of John and said, just come and see what's going on. Just come and see. People had heard about him. Just come and see. You could do that. Some of you, maybe that's where you're at today. You're at that come and see stage. You don't really know much about it. You don't buy into church. There's a bunch of hypocrites here and there are. I'll point them out if you wonder. I know them personally because I'm one. And you know, we, we struggle, you know what I mean? And, uh, but you're just like, I want to come and see. I've heard about some things and I, I just want to check it out. That's the first step. Jesus' invitation. Just come and see. And then all of a sudden he says, now I want you to come and follow me. I want you to come and follow. I want you to be a follower. I want you to be a disciple. And I'm going to make you a disciple maker, a fisher of men. And so we come and follow. We do that all the time at Sunrise Church. In fact, Pastor Brad, at the end of the service, is going to come and do that. Would you become a follower of Jesus? Leave your old life and follow him. Receive forgiveness of sins and identify as a follower of Jesus. And then, as Matthew points out in the video shared, Jesus then challenges his disciples just like he still challenges us why don't you die to yourself 
Why don't you pick up a cross and follow me? Why don't you say no to what you think is most important and pick up my dream for you, which is a dream about my kingdom. And I want you to join me in building that kingdom. And it comes not by sitting at the highest seat in the table, but by getting down to the lowest and washing the feet of the person on the lowest seat. So be a servant like me. We love to do that at sunrise. And then it's not just come and die, as that's what that stage is. It's go and make, and that's the Great Commission. Now you go, and you do that with other people. That's Jesus' invitation, and it still works, and it's still alive. Jesus preached and practiced a show-and-tell ministry. A show-and-tell ministry is literally where you actually demonstrate the power of the kingdom. A lot of churches, a lot of Christians are all about the tell. They love to tell people. They love to talk about it. They love to tell people what they know. They love to teach. They love to preach. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all you have, that's dead. Because you have to demonstrate it. You have to live it. You have to have the kind of heart, the kind of ministry that says, I'm not just going to teach you a truth. I'm going to come up here and I'm going to hold you because you're hurting. I'm going to feed you because you're hungry. I'm going to bring healing into your life because there's some brokenness here. And that's what God can do through you and through me. And he can do into the world today. I hope that you see Sunrise as both a show and a tell church. And I hope you are both a show and a tell Christian. Uh, my boys loved I would go there. I'd see show and tell. It's show and tell. Tuesday, Thursday, whatever it was. And they would take their creations, their Lego things, or some things that, you know, Papa made for them and little things like that. And they, they were so proud they would stand up and tell everybody about it and they would show them. That's what you and I need to be doing. Papa God has given you the ability to show and tell what Jesus has done in your life. Don't just have it up here. Have it here. Love people. Give your life away to people. That's what Jesus practiced. Then he gave us a great commandment and a great commission. Now, I was going to hand out a test after that Matthew video so I could see how many themes you remember, but I'm not going to do that. But I am going to administer just a simple little test right now. The great commandment. One day, a lawyer, an expert in the religious law, came up to Jesus and said, Could you just sum it all up? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God. And he's explained it with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, all your emotions, all your internal spiritual componentry of your life, uh, your thoughts, your intellect, your, your brilliance, your brain, what you do, how you do that. And, and then with your body, with your passion, your power, your strength and what you're doing, your accomplishments. That's the first is to love God, to have passion for God. But the second one is just like it. What do he say? Love your neighbors yourself, exactly. And if you dare ask who's my neighbor, Jesus has a story to tell you. <laughs> Anybody, everybody is your neighbor. So have passion for God and compassion for others. That's the great commandment. Now last week we saw the great commission. What's the great commission? There's only one command. It's to, it's to make disciples. It's to make disciples. Okay, that was a pretty weak response and that was just last week's sermon. Gives me a lot of encouragement as a pastor um, to make disciples and you make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching, evangelizing, building people into the faith, into the community of God and equipping them and sending them out, multiplying into the kingdom of God. Now, this is what I believe. I believe that if you just got that, if I just got that, if we just together said we're going to just focus this year on the great commandment and the great commission, everything would be different. In our lives, in our families, in our finances, in our community, in our workplace, in our schools, it'd be different. Because a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will grow a great church and a great Christian. It really will. It's not about just religious activities. It's about accepting just the simple commands of Jesus and living them out. And then finally, this to me is one of those heart moments. This is Jesus was a friend of sinners. When you see the people that Jesus encountered. 
It was the least. It was the last. It was the lost. It was the prostitute. It was the tax collector. It was the down and out. It was the rejected. It was the one burdened by religion. It was the one burnt out on religion. It was the people, the groups of people that the elite of the spiritual community wanted nothing to do with. And Jesus loved them. And he hung out with them. And he ate with them. He fellowshiped with them. He called them to follow. And they were changed. And I would say this. If you're here today and you're far from God. And maybe church is a new thing. I guarantee you this. Jesus loves you. But more than that, he would really like you if he were here. And I believe he is here. And I believe that he would invite you into his fellowship and friendship. That he would be the one that would be the first to want to spend time with you. And strange as it sounds, you would want to spend time with him. Because he had that attractive personality. And my friends, if we could just do that on the earth today, that would be the greatest lesson we could ever learn. You know, a lot of people had different responses to Jesus. Some people were positive, and there's a lot of positive people toward Jesus here today. Some were neutral, and I know there are neutral people. I've seen it, I've heard it, I'm not sure I'm checking it out, I have questions and doubts. That's fine, you know. Some were negative to Jesus, and some are negative today. We're just kind of holding out, I'm just going to bear up under this church thing, I'm just going to endure it. And I'm just going to kind of continue on with my life and I'm in charge. I get it. Those are the responses that we still see today. I love how C.S. Lewis quoted it or said it in God in the Dock, his book on the essays of faith and ethics. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so if you say you follow Jesus, it better be with everything. Otherwise, discard it. If it's not true, get rid of it. Don't show up anymore. Don't, don't come to church. Don't sing songs. Don't listen to sermons. Don't give. If it's false and work on it, try to prove it false. Like, I, I, that would be a fun one. I'd like you to see you do that. Okay, but if you can do that, give your life to something else. But if it's true, and I've given my life to it, and I believe it's true, give everything to that. Uh, I saw this this last week. This is kind of fun. These jeans are on sale from Nordstrom's. You can get them on Nordstrom.com. They're gorgeous. Uh, they're $425, and uh, they're greatly distressed. Now, the, the, the thing, though, you got to get, you can't see in the picture, you have to read in the description, is this is painted on mud and muck. It's painted on. Painted to look like dried mud, wet mud, look like, you know, that. Now, the, in the advertisement, check this out, in the advertisement, the explanation of this, the marketers use these words. It's deliberate authenticity. Isn't that fun? Man, that sounds like a politician, doesn't it? These are the alternative facts. You know what I mean? No, it's deliberate authenticity. Mike Rowe, dirty jobs guy, came out and said, the, the thing about these jeans is this, these jeans give you the authentic appearance of having authentically worked and not having done any work at all. It's like, that's awesome. Now, psychologically, there's like, got to be like a class that develops out of this at some university. But people want to spend a lot of money, and rich people buy $425 jeans, okay? And, and they want to look bad, and they want to feel bad, or they actually want to have some pride that they really did a lot of work, but they didn't, okay? I mean, it's imagine this. It's like you go downtown Portland, and you, you show up, and you go there, and you go to the vendor who has sweaty T-shirts, filthy smelling, and you buy them, and you put them on, and you stand there, and people go, wow, nice run. Yeah. Nice run, 20 miles, don't I stink? But you didn't do any work, right? Nice fake job, right? They have $900 versions of these jeans. They have sweatpants that looks like 
They literally look like you were Jackson Pollock who just did this splatter paint everywhere. And you come away and you wear these jeans and they're $600 so that you can have deliberate authenticity, but not true authenticity. All right. My friends, I just want to say this. As we follow Jesus, let's not be this kind of person. This is what the religious people were about. They had an appearance of godliness, but they didn't love God. They loved their rules. They loved their lifestyle. And this is hypocrisy. And I know it's, it's a struggle because it's in your heart, it's in my heart. There's a desire sometimes to put on the outer coating of it. Jesus didn't come for that. He came for true authenticity. And true authenticity today would be to not pretend and to lay that down and to follow Jesus. Pray with me. God, I want to thank you so much for the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the message, his method, all that we've seen in the last year and a half. It's been just unbelievable. But may the number one message be that it has to be true in our hearts, not a church reality, but a real reality, not a fake authenticity, but a true authenticity. Move in our hearts to be that and the world will be changed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.